Welcome to Walla Moms, the podcast where we say everything that you can't say in Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Karen. You can find us at Walla Moms Pod on Twitter. Thank you so much to everybody who's reached out, and we really appreciate all the support. Welcome to our new listeners. If you want to contact me or uh, the team at Walla Moms Pod, you can do that via a direct message on Twitter. Here is a listener note that we received from an account on Twitter called Rose City underscore Outrage. Rose City Outrage writes, Hi, I just listened to your latest podcast, RE Mandates. I greatly appreciate how you were able to thoughtfully discuss and debate all sides of issues. You were able to consider all topics with empathy. Not many can do this, perhaps because you are a lawyer and can argue both sides of the case. I share your deep concern for the city of Portland. The culture has become toxic, and this has affected local policy. It feels as though wokeism has replaced logical policy around safety, homeless, education, and economic recovery. I recently left my political affiliation when I began to prioritize the search for truth over political affiliation I awakened. But if you saw me sipping a martini at the Mac Club, you'd think I was an elitist in the donor class. It's painful to be politically moderate because it has forced me to consider things which make me uncomfortable, but it's helping me grow. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Rose City Outrage. Love you. That is a great Twitter account. You all should follow it. Um, should you feel the need to connect with more common sense people in Portland, Oregon, it is frankly refreshing to follow accounts like Centrist in Portland, Kim McGare, uh, Michelle Walker, whose Twitter handle is Open Schools US, Centrist in Portland, whose Twitter handle is Centrist in Port 2. All of these kinds of accounts are great because if you're anything like me, Twitter can seem like an absolute cesspool of extremes. In other words, it's either wokes shaming people and creating accounts that they can humiliate and cancel and collecting screenshots and doxing people, or it's nut job Marjorie Taylor Greene type mega people who are railing on in all caps and with the kind of messaging that should really be on the you really find on Facebook. Uh, there's you know the Antifa people who get all their followers together uh, to go out and do their riots. That all happens on Twitter. But there is a small group of people who are concerned about Portland, and you can find them there on Twitter. You know, one person I think is really concerned about Portland, you guys may or may not know this, but Joanne Hurtesty, who is one of the most left-leaning people on city council. This is the person who took a rideshare in the heat of lockdown 
to go to a casino in Washington and refuse to follow their policy to keep the window down and then called the police on the rideshare after she voted to defund the police and was out and about during the protests and the riots, giving speeches about how the police need to be defunded. She actually called the police and attempted to avail herself of their services. And the police did not assist her because it was not a real call. She wasn't following what the policy was for the rideshare. Um, she's also the one who accused the police of setting fires during the riots and blaming it on protesters. And then, of course, she had to retract her statement because she knew it was false. And because Ted Wheeler called her out and said, well, you're the fire commissioner and you're going to have to open up an investigation into your claims at the expense of the taxpayers. And that was when she retracted her accusations. She had to open the file anyway. And this is the kind of person that we're dealing with here. So if you want to see her out of office, she actually has a challenger. The best news is now, listen, I'm just as concerned as everybody else that we have a representation of women of color on the city commission. I'm more of a race as a plus kind of person, the old school Supreme Court uh, rule where if everybody's the same, we use race as a plus and the diverse person gets the job as long as everybody's the at the same level. Um, the problem is, as far as I know, there is not another woman of color running against Joanne Hardesty who is, that I know of, who, who would be capable of that job. I do know of a diverse person, um, a Latino, Hispanic man, who's running for that position, who would be perfect for the job. His name is Renee Gonzalez. You can find him on Twitter at Renee for Portland. Renee is a former lawyer, brilliant lawyer, and um, he has been described by local media as a conservative, which really means that he's a lefty with some centrist ideas, because this is Portland after all. Renee is absolutely fabulous. His wife is also Hispanic. He cares about homelessness. He cares about families. He cares about, um, he does care about police brutality, but his ideas do not involve getting rid of the police or defunding the police to solve things like police brutality. He believes that crime is out of control and he wants to fix it. Again, his name is Renee Gonzalez. And here at Walla Moms, at this time, we're endorsing him as the challenger to Joanne Hardesty in the city commissioner race. This is from Renee's Twitter account. He says, we have ceded too many of our bypass, sidewalks, and other spaces for walkers, bikers, and children to chaos, violence, and psychosis. PDX, time to take back the commons for everyone. Compassion has a place, but we also need 
to protect. It's a perfect, perfect example of the kind of common sense positions that he has. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, but the homeless situation has gotten so out of control that homeless camps have actually blocked pump access, which would have stopped flooding of homes by Fairview Lake. This is from kgw.com, November 12th, 2021. Nightmare situation, Fairview Lake floods after homeless camps block pump access. The carpet in the basement of Jeff Brown's Fairview home is ripped up. The furniture is gone. By Friday night, the four inches of water he woke up to that morning were down to a centimeter. His patience for the circumstances that got him there were completely gone. We're trying to wrap our arms around the whole scenario, said Brown. Fairview Lake is part of the headwaters for the Columbia River Slough that feed into Multnomah County's drainage district. It's a system that even on very rainy days should have prevented Fairview Lake from rising to flood levels. We have a massive multi-million dollar pump to use on days like this, said Brown. Sadly, the Multnomah County Drainage District isn't able to get the pump because of the homeless encampments. Fairview City officials tell KGW that MCDD crews have been trying to access the pump house near Marine Drive and Northeast Interlochen Lane to draw down the water in Fairview Lake. But in the past month, they've encountered hostility from the homeless camps surrounding and even blocking access to the pumps. The homeless encampments have created a nightmare for the MCDD crew, said Randy Lauer, operations manager for City of Fairview Public Works. The city of Portland owns the land on which the pump house is located. Brown said since last summer, he and other neighbors have been asking Portland city officials to clear camps in the area to no avail. Then Friday afternoon, facing a flooding emergency, Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies escorted MCDD technicians to the pump house while tow trucks started removing abandoned cars and debris. As soon as they got down there with the trucks and equipment and servicemen to look at the pump, there were six gunshots coming from the homeless encampment that all of us heard, said Brown. Lauer said it was the second time gunshots were fired around pump technicians. KGW reached out to Portland City officials for a response to what's happening near the pump house. On Saturday, a spokesperson said the camp was outside the city's jurisdiction and that it had no authority to address it. Fairview City officials told KGW the area is in Portland city limits. KGW reached out to Portland City officials again, who said that they did not have any information about the camp. In the meantime, Brown continues to pump water from his basement, a trickle-down effect to the homeless crisis he never expected. It's a situation that could have been avoided, he said. So now they are blocking access on city property to pumps causing flooding uh, residents' homes, destroying their homes that live around there. They're shooting at city officials, and the city says it. there's nothing it can do. Renee for Portland's Twitter account says, but one of the many ways these unsanctioned camps are environmental catastrophes, offer shelter, arrest those threatening with guns, and sweep the camps. That's exactly right. You know, Renee is the kind of common sense person that we need. Also from Renee's account, last time Multnomah County did a deep dive in 2019, 78.7% of unsheltered people had at least one disability. 
The number one problem on the list of people who are homeless is addiction, followed by mental illness and many with both. With the availability of cheap meth and Measure 110 decriminalization without promised addiction services, we suspect that the percentages are only higher. So Renee's eyes are open to the crisis and the alarm bells that have been ringing for years and that have gotten us to this point. And he wants to fix it and he's got ideas to fix it. He would shelter all of these people who are blocking access to the pump and arrest the people that are shooting the guns. Seems axiomatic that somebody would be doing that, but nobody in this city is interested in doing a damn thing. Their ideas consist of things like sprinkling the homeless throughout neighborhoods, creating sanctioned tent encampments that they use flowery words for it, like safe rest shelters, which sounds great, but is a complete catastrophe. I've heard people say those are good ideas and they're good solutions because the safe rest shelters will be housing, quote unquote housing. I mean, these are tents basically that the city is building. And if you've seen one of these, there's one, well, there's a bunch of them. But there's one right near the waterfront on the southeast side. Go visit it. I urge you to go check it out. It is filled with garbage, debris, zombie RVs, zombie cars. It looks like something out of South Sudan. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I mean, it it looks worse than a lot of third world countries. Um, I spent a month in Egypt. I've been to Mexico more times than I can count and not just resort towns. Like I've, I've driven virtually all over the country of Mexico. I've never seen, I mean, these, these are a, a lot of Mexicans that I've seen that have outdoor, outdoor, no outdoor or indoor plumbing that um, put urine and fecal matter into holes in the ground. Um, this is nothing nothing in Mexico compares to what's going on at these quote-unquote safe rest shelters. Uh, the detritus and the the way these people are living is heartbreaking. And we need to fix it. And they should be in shelters where they can get social services and be transitioned into housing. And if they're not going to be sheltered, They should be taken outside of city limits, just like Kevin Falconer, the mayor of San Diego, did with their homeless population. Because Kevin Falconer in San Diego created a system where it was no longer a choice to live in a tent. He believed that all San Diego citizens deserve dignity and deserve to be housed, and that it wasn't okay to decompensate and force other residents who are just trying to survive and trying to house themselves and trying to get to work and trying to make it to watch you decompensate. It is traumatic to live 
in the midst of all of this. Of course, it's traumatic for the people in tents, and that's why we need to get them out of the tents. It's traumatic for the people in the safe fresh shelters. We need to get them out of the safe fresh shelters. They should be in actual shelters with structure and systems and rules about compliance because their diseases are telling them to stay the way, to stay the course, stay in the tent, get your drugs, go crazy, don't take your Seroquel. That's what their bodies and minds are compelling them to do. But if you're, I just want you to take a second. As you know, I have a dad who's homeless, sister who's homeless. My dad was homeless. He died. Sister who's homeless lived with them as homeless people. And I did everything in my power to get the various states that they lived in to compel them to get services so that they weren't in a crack house, a crack motel, some ditch somewhere, so that they were not held captive by their addictions and mental illnesses. And if let's raise the bar a little bit. What if one of the people in these tents was your child? Okay. So all you homeless advocates out there who show up at the Laurelhurst sweeps with your guns and your signs and who scream at the city officials who are cleaning up the tents, I want you to imagine that these people in the tents are your children. Are you going to continue to make the argument that we should leave them alone Bring them meals, bring them socks, let bring them some, some floss, let them live in these tents and continue to circle the drain and eventually die like this. Is that is that the argument that you're gonna stick to, assuming that these were your children? Because if I had a child who was living in a tent, I would want that child to live in a city where they can be compelled to accept services, whatever those services they might need, mental health services, addiction services, that would include um, not an arrest. I'm not talking about criminalizing drug addiction or criminalizing homelessness. I'm talking about a conservatorship. I'm talking about a form of drug court that is a civil system. I'm talking about mental health conservatorships, because if you are, if you were at a point in your life where you're living in a tent, something has gone so terribly wrong that the state needs to step in and assist you and pull you up. No citizen in this country should ever be allowed to live the way Portlanders, Seattleers, San Franciscanites are allowed to live, period. And if you think about this scenario that I'm posing, that these people in tents are your children, I think you'd agree with me. Imagine your child is living on a, in a tent um, or in one of these safe fresh shelters in Southeast Portland. Um, their lives are, have become completely unmanageable for whatever reason. And I know a lot of people will are thinking right now, right? They're thinking, well, we don't really have data on how many people in these tents are mentally ill and addicted. 
And I would say to you, come to Portland and walk around and take a look at these people and let me know if you think they look like functional adults. What they look like is people who need functional MRIs. They can hardly stand up. They can't, they're filthy because they can't bathe. They can't wash themselves. They're living in squalor, literally. They're living in their own filth. And so there's clearly a problem. And I would say, even if they're not schizophrenic, and even if they don't need hardcore psychiatric drugs, and even if they don't have drug addictions, Something has happened in their life that has created one of the most hellish circumstances a person can live through, and they need our help. And they may not want our help. They may not want to go to a shelter. And you know, a lot of the common complaints I've heard about shelters are they're dirty. Okay, again, I would encourage you to walk around Portland and take a look at these tents. I've been to these shelters. I work with these shelters. I work for these shelters. They're not dirtier than a tent. In fact, some of them, I mean, yeah, you know, some of them aren't to the level of, you know, it doesn't look like Kathy Hilton's house. But some of these shelters are incredible looking. I mean, some of them are pristine. Um, They all contract out with cleaning services. Nobody in tents contracts out with the cleaning service. They have indoor plumbing. They have plumbing, period. They have showers. And they have services um, that can help you get showered, get dressed. They will help you procure clothing. They will work with you to get into a house because shelters are not meant to live in forever. They will ensure that you get on track as long as, here's the stickler, as long as you follow the rules. So sometimes that means no drugs. And that means, yeah, you, you, you might have to go to detox and you might have to go to rehab. Um, Another argument I've heard about why people don't want to go to shelters is my stuff gets stolen. I have no doubt that that's happened. We've got a bunch of people in a shelter whose lives have all become unmanageable and presumably there's some criminal behavior, some antisocial behavior going on because these are people who clearly can't function in society and need a leg up. They need to be able to get the services they need so that they can function once again. Or, or to the extent they've never functioned, they can learn how to function. Um, but I also know, and I watch on an almost daily basis, while people steal things out of other people's tents. So people steal my things in shelters is not an argument to move, to, to refuse to move from your outdoor tent to a shelter. Um, I can't bring my pet. That's another argument. Well, I would say your pet, uh, we all love our pets. They're like our family, and that is heartbreaking. But if you are so dysfunctional that you're living in a tent, your pet is the least of your worries. And the humane 
society and really many, 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 particularly in Portland, I know the people who run the Humane Society of Portland, these are caring, wonderful people, and they will make sure that your pet gets a fabulous home. And when you are back on your feet, you will get a pet too. You will get a pet and you will be able to care for that pet and you will be able to care for that pet in a house situation. Another argument, I can't bring my boyfriend or girlfriend. Well, contrary to popular belief, there are shelters in Portland that accept couples. Um, Additionally, at this point, because your life has become unmanageable, unfortunately, you need to focus on yourself. Forget the girlfriend and the boyfriend. This is a matter of, it's literally a matter of life or death. You don't want to die in a tent in Portland, Oregon. You want to get yourself better. And if that means getting rid of the boyfriend or the girlfriend or separating from them for a period of time so that you can get shelter and indoor plumbing, I beg you to do it. And if I were your mother, I would do anything I could to get you to accept moving into a shelter and to get the help that you need. The problem is we have no systems in place to compel people to do that. And in fact, we have city leaders who not only encourage, but practically applaud people in tents. They refer to them as our houseless neighbors, our houseless citizens. Um, And I think all that's fine as long as we're not assuming stasis, as long as we're not assuming that this is how it's always going to be. And it's so silly. It doesn't have to be like this. Yes, I know the ACLU. I used to be a card-carrying member of the ACLU. They've gone completely insane. I know that the ACLU would jump all over this. Okay, believe me, I know it. And and the city would be in the fight of its life and it would have probably have to spend a ton of money on lawsuits, et cetera, which it's already spending for various reasons anyway. Um, but you know what? It's worth it. Just test it out. Start a civil system where you compel people out of the tents and into temporary shelter with indoor plumbing so that they can get the help that they need and they can transition into becoming thriving members of society. If I'm the mother of the people in these tents, I want them to live full, thriving lives where they can be everything they were meant to be, where they can live in a way that is perfectly attuned to the person they're supposed to be and they can be all that God intended them to be. And so that they can live fully and functionally and happy and healthy lives. And unfortunately, because of the nature of addiction and mental illness, the only way to really do that is through a civil process where we compel that. And if they can't get clean, if they can't get on track with their mental health, then they're institutionalized until and unless they can. And at least their families know that they have a safe place to be. I'm not talking about the Rosemary Kennedy institutions. I'm talking about a setting that's similar to, you know, let's say hospice care. I'm something I'm sadly relatively familiar with, but the wonderful thing about hospice care is the uh, nature of the staff and the way that they go above and beyond for their patients. And that's how these institutions would be. It would be staffed by caring individuals educated individuals uh, who specialize 
in myriad addiction, mental health problems, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, addiction counselors, MDs, uh, methadone, suboxone, uh, put all of that together in these institutions and, and provide them with the care that they need. And that way, their families know they're getting the help they need. Currently, it might be against their will, but hopefully at some point things change. And in the meantime, at least they're getting three meals a day. They're sleeping on a bed in a housed situation. They have indoor plumbing and they really have everything that they need in life. And for those of you who say it costs too much money, believe me, taxpayers will fund absolutely anything in Portland. They will fund this. They will fund this. And it costs us money anyway. If you think that we're not paying for these people in tents, think again. We are paying for every single one of those people. The amount of services the city throws their way, the, the cleanups, the needles, the crime, the, uh, the property crime that's, that's drug-induced, um, the mental health breakdowns. You want to talk about police brutality and how police are hard on people who have mental health breakdowns? Let's get these people off of the streets and not subject to police who don't know how to deal with them. Let's get this taken care of. There's an article from Portland Mercury, November 2nd, 2021. Illegal camp sweeps and limited shelter space. East, East Multnomah County grapples with a growing homeless crisis. I would say build more shelters. We have buckets of money to do it. We have a gigantic homeless tax. It's a tri-county homeless tax. Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington. Plenty of money to create more shelters if we don't have enough shelters. And there are plenty of services in downtown. I understand that there aren't as many services or shelters in East Portland, and those should be built. Those should be being built like crazy. Forget Dan Ryan and his idiotic safe rest villages. Build the shelters. That's where all of our calories should be going right now. Do you, do you really think say a safe rest area with makeshift tents filled with detritus and zombie RVs and zombie cars is, is the answer? Does the city, I mean, the city thinks that's the answer. The city has gone completely insane and has no interest in really helping people in tents. They talk flowery, they talk in flowery ways using words like homeless neighbors, houseless neighbors, most vulnerable, um, so, some of the citizens they allegedly most want to protect, but they do nothing to get these people out of the tents. They are doing nothing to address any of the root causes of homelessness. And they should be running data to see figure out what the causes of homelessness actually are. It sounds like, according to Renee Gonzalez's Twitter, the city has done some of that, and we know that the root causes of homelessness right now are, no surprise, addiction, mental illness. But it, is it possible? Is there literally anybody else living in a tent who is not drug addicted or mentally ill? And I would posit to you, no. 
but let's get some concrete. And really, is it because I have a crystal ball? No, it's because I have a crystal brain. I walk around with my eyes open and I can see the people in these tents. And these, again, these are not functional adults. This is not Britney Spears. The Talk about a conservatorship. Great, she's free. These people should not be. They need to get out of the tents. And the city's just not interested in doing it. Um, according to this article, these are a lot of these are people who live on the Sandy River Delta. And they've moved into the woods. But the problem is heavy rains cause the sandy to spill into the floodplain and it threatens all the camps and all their garbage goes into the Sandy River. And we've got illegal dumping and we've got feces and um, the, the whole thing is, is a huge, I mean, where are environmentalists? The whole thing is a huge environmental mess. And according to this article in the Portland Mercury, November 2nd, 2021, camping is prohibited, but the agencies involved in its oversight aren't interested in enforcing it against people who have nowhere else to go. Partially, it's because this is my commentary, that's illegal. It was a Ninth Circuit case called Martin versus City of Boise that said, any laws that penalize people for sleeping outside where there's no alternative shelter available is a form of cruel and unusual punishment. So you cannot criminalize people for sleeping on public property unless there's adequate shelter available. Um, of course, that makes sense. It says that's not always an option in the towns near the Delta. Well, Martin does not require you to shelter a homeless person um, within a certain radius of their encampment, okay? So if the city has shelter space, which we do, you're not running afoul of the Martin versus City of Boise case if you put them in a shelter that's further away from their encampment. So it doesn't need to be near the Delta. It doesn't need to be in East Multnomah County. According to this article, it says, if we meet someone who would like to move to a shelter, if, I mean, that's a huge if, we know the people in tents are generally service resistant, but according to this article, if we meet someone who would like to move to a shelter, that usually means driving them to downtown Portland. It's challenging to get a spot closer to their home. Well, they live in a tent. So the priority should not be to get them to a shelter that's close to their tent and then to throw up your hands and say, well, looks like all the shelters near your tent are full. No, you put them in a van or your car or what have you, and you drive them to the shelter in downtown Portland that has space. Look, this is a five alarm. I don't understand what the city doesn't get about this. This is a five alarm emergency. You have people living like it's sub-Saharan Africa. These are your citizens. It's disgusting for them and it's really disgusting that our leaders are fine with it and that's the worst part of all the worst part of all is that our leaders the people who could change this have no interest and they use excuses like um well you know they don't want to move out of tents or well there aren't there isn't shelter space near their tent stop it Put them in your car and drive them to shelter. These, these are non-functional people. Pick them up. Help them out. Get them to a shelter. 
It says, Outreach workers believe it's important not to displace locals when trying to place them in temporary housing. Well, you know what? Start building shelters in East Portland. And in the meantime, get these people out of tents and get them housed. What's the worst that can happen? I mean, really? Their stuff in their tent gets stolen? Is that the worst that can happen? Well, guess what? These are people that block access to pumps that create lakes to overflow and flood homes. The, these are people shitting in the woods, living in tents, cooking over open flames. This is a humanitarian crisis and you're worried about moving them too far away from their tent. Our, our priorities are bonkers absolutely bonkers. There's a section of this Portland Mercury article from November 2nd, 2021 that just sort of glosses over something that I think is paramount. Multnomah County currently operates a team of outreach workers called the Navigation Team that visits unhoused people to offer services and support that could help them move into housing. The funds from Metro's supporting housing service measure is slated to expand the number of employees on that team to cover the county's east side. And then they just move on to other stuff in the article. Stop for a minute. Th this is amazing. Let's expand this team so that we can get people out of tents and into the housing. This article in the Portland Mercury, November 2nd, 2021, also says that there's some vigilantism involved whereby citizens are showing up at this Sandy River Delta camp and picking up what appears to be garbage and the homeless people are upset because they're saying that it's their stuff. And according to one of the citizens who was picking up garbage and who's being accused by the homeless of stealing, they said, if somebody wanted to go out to thousand acres and pick up a gum wrapper, gum wrapper, is that illegal now? Where does it stop? Where's the line? So the, the, that type of quote-unquote vigilanteism where citizens are going into areas that are near their homes or that are adjacent to their homes that are filled with feces and trash and tents and just picking it up, that's going to continue. And the friction between the housed and the unhoused is going to get worse because property taxes are only going up. It's harder and harder to afford things in this inflated economy. Prices are only going up and, and people and families don't want to live adjacent to tents and they don't want to live adjacent to people who are decomposing before their very eyes because it's, it's not only, of course, it's traumatic for the people in the tents. Number one, it is traumatic for the people in the tents, but we can't discount the amount of trauma that is inflicted on all of us who are watching the disintegration. It is traumatic. The kind of stuff that we see, the sores, the wounds, um, the, uh, the mental breaks, the drug use with the needles and the spoons, uh, people lying around just unconscious. We don't know if they're alive or dead. 
it's really the, the nudity, the erect penises, um, people, you know, openly having various kinds of sex. That doesn't make for good neighbors. And I don't know if any of you have lived with addicts. I've lived with too many to count. Um, but they don't make, they not only don't make good roommates, they don't make good neighbors. Um, because their lives are unmanageable and completely out of control. And you're going to see a lot of things you don't want to see. And your kids are going to see a lot of things that, that you don't want them to see. And, you know, what's really important here is getting these people's lives back on track. You know, let's help these people. Let's talk about the ACLU for a minute. Like I said, I used to be a card-carrying proud member of the ACLU. They've done absolutely incredible work, incredible work for decades. But they've gone full woke, completely off the deep end. I don't know if you know about this, but um, this is from the New York Times, September 27, 2021. ACLU apologizes for tweet that altered quote by Justice Ginsburg. The organization acknowledged that changing references from women to people was a mistake, albeit a well-intentioned one. I love how the Times adds that, albeit a well-intentioned one. Article says, the ACLU tweet, which was sent out September 18th, changed Justice Ginsburg's words, replacing each of her references to women with person or people, or a plural pronoun in brackets. Justice Ginsburg, who died last year, is a revered figure in liberal and feminist circles and directed the ACLU's Women's Rights Project from its founding in 1972 until she became a federal judge in 1980. Justice Ginsburg underwent Senate confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court in 1993. Asked where she stood on reproductive rights, she did not equivocate. The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. The ACLU rendered her quote this way, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a person's life, to their well-being and dignity. When the government controls that decision for people, they are being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for their own choices. The ACLU's defense was, my colleagues do a fantastic job of trying to understand a reality that people who seek abortions are not only women, that reality exists. That's the article. So let's stop there for a minute. Um, I have trans friends and colleagues who I don't know what their sexual organs currently consist of, and that's none of my business, but they do not identify as the gender in which they were born. Um, they have transitioned, at least on the outside, to male from female. And theoretically, if their sex organs have not changed, and if their hormones haven't changed substantially, they could have a baby. So, does that mean that they are men? because they choose to identify as men, um, because they have outwardly transitioned to male, or does it mean that when we are speaking about 
medical facts, like the ability to bear a child. We refer to people who bear children physically from their bodies as female or as women or as mothers. I had a pretty long conversation with a colleague and friend of mine who is not trans, but we have many trans friends in common. She's gay. And according to her, many people who've transitioned to men who refer to themselves as men and who see themselves as fathers of their children, as opposed to mothers of their children, who see themselves as fathers, but who are physically able to bear children, find it very painful to be referred to as mother. And to that, I would say, I, I am sure that they do, and I, I feel terrible for them to the, to the extent that they're in pain. I feel terrible for anybody who's in pain, period. But, and, and, and I'm speaking as, as an ally and as a friend of, of trans people, but I will say that um, the fact is, if you're able to bear a child, medically speaking, you're a woman. Now, I know in a lot of medical schools, they're changing that up as well. But at some point, don't we have to tangle with biology here? I mean, the fact is, if you have a baby, you've got female sex hormones. And I mean that in a scientific and medical sense. I, I'm not saying that you don't identify as a male. I'm not saying that you don't think of yourself as a father. But you have female sex hormones that enable and, and sex organs that enable you to bear a baby. And so at some point, when we talk about reproductive rights, when we talk about motherhood, yes, I said it, the word motherhood, when we talk about um, maternal mortality, we have to tangle with the insides. We've got to acknowledge the inside sex organs of that father who has female, I'm going to say it, female sex organs. And I think it's a disgrace and um, very sad to Justice Ginsburg for the ACLU to change wording of some of her most, some of the most powerful words she's ever uttered. And she was very passionate about women's rights. She was a mother. She was a grandmother. She was very passionate about children. And she was a liberal, inclusive person who I am sure would consider herself a trans ally. And yet, those are the words that she spoke. She spoke about women and women's decision about bearing a child. And she was referring to people who have female sex organs and have the ability to bear a child. And I think that if you've kept your female sex organs and you are going to bear a child, you need to probably be prepared for the idea that people will use words like female, woman, 
maternal mother uh, words that refer to your internal organs. Because they still, the fact is, if you're able to bear a child, those still exist. And we can't medically deny that. It doesn't make any sense to deny that even in language. Um, and to desecrate Justice Ginsburg's words to appear uber woke shows to me just how insane the ACLU has gone. And no, I'm not a member anymore and I don't intend to give them another dime ever. Also gone insane, the Biden administration. This is from newsweek.com. June 7th, 2021, Biden administration replaces mothers with birthing people in maternal health guidance. The White House's 2022 fiscal year budget replaced the word mothers with birthing people in a section about public health funding. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate among developed nations with an unacceptably high mortality rate for black American, Indian, Alaska Native, and other women of color. To help end this high rate of maternal mortality and race-based disparities and outcomes among birthing people, reads the 2022 White House fiscal year budget proposal. Let's step away from the article for a minute. What I find odd is that they use the word birthing people, but they, but the Biden administration also used the words maternal and women, and then it used the word maternal again. But it changed mothers to, to birthing people, presumably, just like the ACLU, to be inclusive to people who were born as women but now identify as men and consider themselves fathers. Well, if you're going to go this insane, Biden administration, I would say, to start using idiotic words like birthing people, why are you still using words like maternal or women? Why didn't you change those words too? I mean, it just, the, the inconsistencies are bizarre because you know they spent hours coming up with the term birthing people and then hours discussing how important it is to change the language uh, to birthing people instead of mothers. Um, here are some things that, this makes me wonder all the, questions that came up when the ACLU screwed up Justice Ginsburg's quote, but a few other questions come to mind. Number one, will Kamala stop calling herself Mamala? Because that's exclusive, right? Mom? Doesn't that denote woman? Just a side note, I don't know if this is Biden doing this bullshit or his staff or, or if he's like buying into all this garbage, but this is not the moderate uniter that I thought I was voting for. <laughs> Just to be really clear, this is, this is I, I feel like AOC is president right now, and I actually love a lot of things about her. I think she would have made a great trial lawyer. I love it when she's in Congress and she's grilling people and she's asking them questions. I think she's absolutely fabulous at cross-examination. She's, in a lot of ways, whip smart. But I also think she is... Um, left of insane in regard to her policies that eat the rich bullshit at the Met Gala was part of her peak insanity. 
Um, and it's almost like she's our president. I mean, this is like, it, it, this is like the kind of thing I would expect from AOC, but this birthing people kind of thing. Continuing with this Newsweek article, the pro-choice nonprofit Neral defending, defended use of the term, tweeting, when we talk about birthing people, we're being inclusive. It's that simple. We use gender neutral language when talking about pregnancy because it's not just cisgender women that can get pregnant and give birth. Reproductive freedom is for everybody. Okay, stepping away from the article for a minute. Yes, it's not just cisgender women that can get pregnant and give birth. I understand that somebody who identifies as a man can get pregnant and give birth. But again, when we're talking, I mean, Neral used the word reproductive, reproductive freedom. When we're talking about the ability to reproduce, we cannot deny, because it's a fact, we cannot deny that the ability to reproduce can only occur with female sex organs and hormones. It is impossible for a cis man, cis means the gender in which you were born to, to have a baby. Therefore, knock it off with this shit. Stop it. Stop it with thinking that you're an ally to trans people by screwing around with the biology. There are plenty of ways to support people who identify as men who are giving birth. And I don't think it includes fucking around with Justice Ginsburg's quotes, and it doesn't include calling them birthing people. In fact, I I don't think, I, I can't imagine that anybody would enjoy the term birthing people. That's an absolutely idiotic phrase. I don't know what they're paying all those IVs in those rooms to come up with phrases like birthing people, but it's too much, period. I also wonder, I love it. One thing I love, and I, I will at the outset acknowledge this, what, one thing that I absolutely love about the intent behind the changing the language is inclusiveness, love for everyone, wanting everybody to feel accepted and included, particularly people on the margins. I mean, I would say somebody who identifies as a man and is pregnant is on the margins. I mean, I would not want to walk around being that person. I think that would be, the whole experience would be absolutely painful and difficult. And every time you round a corner, you wonder what somebody's going to say or do. I, I absolutely get that. And I, I love the intent here. Um, but my question is, how many people are we really assisting um, and and how many men, people who identify as men, are pregnant and having babies? Do we have numbers here? I mean, my guess is it's very, very small. And my guess is to the extent that they exist, I probably some unwanted pregnancies there because if, if I identify as a man, the last thing I want to do is carry a kid. I mean, the most womanly thing on the planet is getting pregnant and bearing a baby. And that's why infertility, which is something I struggled with, which is something many women struggle with, is so fucking hard on women and probably men, who, women who identify as men too. So hard on women because we feel like we're not 
women, we're not doing what God has programmed us to do. We're not fulfilling our, our I'm going to sound insane here, our holy mission. But it's that's how I felt when I, I, I'm not a holy roller. I'm not an evangelical. But, but that is, I'm not, I'm not Mormon. I don't believe my, you know, I'm a working lawyer for PCG. I don't, I don't think that my role in life is to bear children. But when you're infertile, you, and you're suffering with infertility, you, your mindset as a woman, it, it just becomes so myopic. And the emotional turmoil that you go through is so horrific because you can't perform the one function that's supposed to be simple, that it just seems like everybody can do it. There are trailer parks full of, you know, kids bearing kids, and yet you can't do it. Your body's incapable of it, and it feels like you're less of a woman. It's extremely painful. And I'm wondering how, why somebody who is so intent on being a father and being called a man would ever get pregnant, would ever do something that is one of the most womanly things that you can do. Um, nonetheless, of course, it happens by choice, by not. But how many people is that really? I mean, does that really necessitate a language change on the behalf of the Biden administration? Does it really necessitate the ACLU fucking around with Justice Ginsburg's otherwise extremely powerful quotes? And, and I, I also find it odd that they're using words like maternal, but m- the word mother is not okay. Maternal is derivative of mother. So it just, it made the inconsistent, I guess the editor in me, I was um, on law review and I spent like two years just doing nothing but editing probably the kind of stuff that would I should probably be reading to put me to sleep now that I have middle-aged insomnia. But the editor in me looks at this stuff and the inconsistencies of language makes me absolutely insane. This article um, from newsweek.com 6721 goes on to say the budget Biden budget proposal goes on to include more than 200 million to reduce maternal mortality. There it is. There's the word again. Maternal mortality and morbidity rates nationwide bolster maternal mortality review committees expand the role of maternity and obstetrics management strategies program now how will all this help trans people practically this rewording stuff i mean i think they have more on their plate to worry about than this are we going to change the term mother's day is the term mother offensive is it truly non-inclusive why can't you be a woman turned trans man who is a mother why not? I mean, I I understand my friend's point, which was there are many people out there who are capable of giving birth but identify as men, and, and the idea of not being a father is extremely painful. But are there trans people out there who want to be identified as, as, as mothers for the sake of being the one who birthed the child? And I would say on behalf of somebody who was infertile for a very long time and was thankfully able to become a mother, I, it would, 
I'm sure my heartbreak doesn't compare to somebody who wants to identify as a father, but please don't erase the term mother from women who want to be called mothers. There are women who struggle with infertility, who have complicated relationships with their mothers, who don't want to call their mothers birthing people. They love their mommies. You, you know, my mom's dead, but every, every, I wish she was here every day. I need my mommy. And we all, we all need and want and have some idealized form of a mommy. And that's a fact. Even if we have two gay dads, you know, kids want a mommy figure. And many gay dads incorporate a friend of the family or relative to be that mommy figure. Kids, no matter how old, need their mommies. And that term is sacred and near and dear to many of us. Many of us will not relinquish it willingly. And we went through a lot physically and emotionally to be called that. And I think about the adopted mothers, the adoptive mothers and the emotional and financial turmoil that they went through to become adoptive mothers, what they went through to be called mothers and their journeys. Don't erase them. They're not, they're not birthing people. They didn't give birth. But guess what? The term mother applies to them. Even though they didn't give birth, the term mother applies to them and it should apply to them. They earned it. They earn that term every day. And Biden and ACLU, figure out your shit and figure out how to, how to assuage your conscience and be inclusive. But don't put the term birthing person on us. I understand that, you know, We want, we want to be inclusive. I get it. And, and I, I love the sentiment. But this is an overcorrection. You're overcorrecting. Find a different term if you need one. Why, why can't you find a term for cisgender men who become, excuse me, for cisgender women who transition into men and give birth? Why can't you find, just find a term for them. Figure out what they want to be called, Okay. But don't yank the term mother from those of us who want to refer to our mothers as mother, for those of us who want our babies to refer to us as mommy, um, for those of us who have earned the title, feel that we have earned the title mother and want to be called mother. Empathy is not a pie, okay? Just because you use the term mother doesn't mean that you're excluding trans people who want to be identified as a father. There's got to be a way we can come up with a term for them so that they feel loved and included. But there shouldn't be a hierarchy of suffering here, okay? Or a victimhood. You don't get to erase the term mother because trans pregnant people are sadly treated poorly. That doesn't fix anything for the people who are treated poorly. And my guess is that their biggest beef isn't that they're called mother. 
my guess is that they have a lot of other things to worry about than whether Ruth Ginsburg's quotes were reimagined to include them. And unfortunately for the ACLU, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the very first feminists of her time. And yes, I used the word feminist. I think we can include trans people without erasing cis women from the equation and without erasing feminists and and mothers from the equation. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not graduate from Harvard because of sex discrimination, because of discrimination against women. She was a top graduate of Cornell University. She enrolled at Harvard Law in 1956, following her husband, who was in his second year there. And her class at Harvard Law had 552 men and just eight other women. And that is a story that has become part of her legend. And it is part of what spurred her to engage in her feminist legal career that she later became famous for, where she argued about discrimination on the base of sex. And to start screwing around with her words, erasing the term woman, screwing around with the term mother, erasing the term mother, we also erase what she and other, yes, cisgendered women fought for. You know, woman used to be an identity category, cis women. That was an identity category and discrimination against women on the basis of sex is explicitly prohibited because of the work that people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. I mean, I think we we forget, yes, there's discrimination against trans people, but sex discrimination against women is and was real and continues to be real. And I'm talking about cis, cis women. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg dedicated her life to combating that. She is a leftist hero and her words shouldn't be changed to conform to woke society and what's acceptable on woke Twitter. Do you guys know that, I mean, I know people don't, feminism, that, that's a term that's been demonized since the days of, of Rush Limbaugh. And then later it was de- demonized by leftist young women, uh, millennials, um, people who refused to call themselves feminists. But when I was a kid, People like my mother paved the way for people like me to go to college and to get a job. And I think people would be blown away if they really just sit back and think about the fact that feminist women and women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg are who we have to thank for the kinds of statistics we currently have regarding women in the workforce, women in professional school, 
women in college. Do you know women represent 50% of medical students now? They also earned the majority of doctoral degrees in 2019 for the 11th straight year. And this is because of feminists, people who fought for equal treatment of women. And there's no reason we can't continue to recognize that and to leave intact Ruth Bader Ginsburg's sage words, to leave intact the word mother, and to also wrap our arms around the trans community and surround them with love and support. Those things should not be mutually exclusive. And people who use terms like TERF, have you heard about this? Rise of trans exclusionary radical feminists. People who use terms like TERF and who are like the Biden administration and the ACLU who are trying to drive a wedge between cis women who want to continue to be recognized as women and mothers and trans people need to stop. Because that's just going to further our divide. Biden is supposed to be our great uniter. There are plenty, I would say, most, um, I mean, I think most rational cis women agree that trans people should be treated with love and respect. And there's, again, these things are not mutually exclusive and, and we don't need to engage in divisive rhetoric and divisive behavior that is just going to further divide us. I mean, this is the president of the goddamn United States. What is wrong with him in his administration? Stop it. Knock it off with this birthing person crap. And this trans backlash against radical feminists makes absolutely no sense to me. You know, radical feminists tried to change the idea of what is a woman and what is a man. They were against essentialism. Essentialism says that people who are born with certain sex organs and, and chromosomes have certain characteristics and are here to do certain things, gender-divided occupations, gender-divided roles within the household, within the family. Radical feminists tried to change the idea of, of the way society saw women and defined them and the way that they defined men. They opened the doors for trans people to begin transitioning and defining for themselves what their identity is. Because radical feminists were some of the first people to start questioning whether a woman's place was really just in the home. You know, they were the ones who said women can be doctors and men can be stay-at-home dads. They're the ones we have to thank for all these women, powerful, powerful leaders, Oprah, Beyonce, people who own their sexuality and their power. You know, this, this kind of stuff is the result of fe radical feminism, and it shouldn't be demonized. You're, everybody's forgetting their history and you can't do that because it, then you have absolutely no appreciation or context for the current world that we live in. And frankly, for the privileges that are afforded to all of us, to me, to be a practicing attorney and, and again, to trans people and trans activists 
for being able to look at gender through a different lens. And that is what Radical Feminist did. I mean, this has gone so far that did you know med schools are now denying biological sex? This is from Barry Weiss's substat called Common Sense. Barry Weiss is a absolutely fabulous writer. She left the New York Times because she was being demonized as a Jew who is a Zionist. And she was being demonized for not being woke enough for the New York Times. And she was basically forced out of there. She is not a conservative. She is a left-leaning person who just happens to be Jewish and happens to believe in preserving the state of Israel. She started um, her big journalistic career at the Wall Street Journal, which was too, she decided was too conservative for her. And so she moved over to the New York Times and eventually she was uh, foisted out of there. And she now has a very successful Substack, and she has a very successful podcast. Her pedigree is impeccable, as you'd expect for somebody from the New York Times. She attended Columbia University in New York City, and she was the founding editor of a magazine called The Current at Columbia for politics, culture, and Jewish affairs. Following graduation, she was a Wall Street Journal Bartley Fellow in 2007. And now she has has this very successful Substack. And she has a podcast called Honestly, which is also fabulous. She had a writer named Katie Herzog on her Substack. Katie is a journalist. She has a podcast called Blocked and Reported. She lives in Seattle with her wife. She's a former staff writer at... Seattle's provocative and my favorite paper called The Stranger. She was. Um, Now she mostly focuses on her podcasting and her cultural uh, criticisms. So in this Substack article on Barry Weiss's Substack, Katie Herzog did a piece about the spread of woke ideology in the field of medicine. The article is entitled, Med Schools Are Now Denying Biological Sex. The article says, during a recent endocrinology course at a top medical school in the University of California system, a professor stopped mid-lecture to apologize for something he'd said at the beginning of class. I don't want you to think that I am in any way trying to imply anything. And if you can summon some generosity to forgive me, I would really appreciate it, the physician says, in a recording provided by a student in the class whom I'll call Lauren. Again, I'm very sorry for that. It was certainly not my intention to offend anyone. The worst thing I can do as a human being is be offensive. His offense was using the term pregnant women. I said when a woman is pregnant, which implies that the only women can get pregnant, and I most sincerely apologize to all of you. It wasn't the first time Lauren had heard an instructor apologize for using language that to most Americans would seem utterly inoffensive. Words like male and female. Why would medical school professors apologize for referring to a patient's biological sex? Because Lauren explains in the context of her medical school, acknowledging biological sex 
can be considered transphobic. When sex is acknowledged by her instructors, it's sometimes portrayed as a social construct, not a biological reality, she says. In a lecture on transgender health, an instructor declared biological sex, sexual orientation, and gender are all constructs. These are all constructs we have created. In other words, some of the country's top medical students are being taught that humans are not, like other mammals, a species comprising two sexes. The notion of sex they are learning is just a man-made creation. The idea that sex is a social construct may be interesting debate fodder in an anthropology class, but in medicine, the material reality of sex really matters, in part because the refusal to acknowledge sex can have devastating effects on patient outcomes. In 2019, the New England Journal of Medicine reported the case of a 32-year-old transgender man who went to the ER complaining of abdominal pain. While the patient disclosed he was transgender, his medical records did not. He was simply a man. The triage nurse determined that the patient, who was obese, was in pain because he'd stopped taking a medication meant to relieve hypertension. This was no emergency, she decided. She was wrong. The patient was, in fact, pregnant and in labor. By the time hospital staff realized that it was too late, the baby was dead. And the patient, despite his own shock at being pregnant, was shattered. To Dana Beyer, a trans activist in Maryland who is also a retired surgeon, such stories illustrate how vital it is that sex, not just gender identity, how someone perceives their gender, is taken into consideration in medicine. The practice of medicine is based in scientific reality, which includes sex but not gender, Beyer says. The more honest a patient is with their physician, the better the odds for a positive outcome. The denial of sex doesn't help anyone, perhaps least of all, transgender patients who require special treatment. But, Lauren says, instructors who discuss sex risk complaints from their students, which is why she thinks many don't. I think there's a small percentage of instructors who are true believers, but most of them are probably just scared of their students, she says. And for good reason, her medical school hosts an online forum in which students correct their instructors for using terms like male and female, or breastfeed instead of chest feed. Students can lodge their complaints in real time during lectures. After one class, Lauren says, she heard that a professor was so upset by students calling her out for using male and female that she started crying. Then there are the petitions. At the beginning of the year, students circulated a number of petitions designed to, as Lauren puts it, name and shame instructors for wrong speak. One was delivered after a lecture on chromosomal disorders in which the professor used the pronouns she and her, as well as the terms father and son, all of which, according to the students, are cis-normative. After the petition was delivered, the instructor emailed the class, noting that while she had consulted with a member of the school's LGBTQ committee prior to the lecture, she was sorry for using such binary language. Another petition was delivered after an instructor referred to a man changing into a woman, which, according to the students, incorrectly assumed that the trans woman wasn't always a woman. But, as Lauren points out, if trans women were born women, why would they need to transition? This phenomenon of students policing teachers, of students being treated as authorities over and above their teachers, has had consequences.
Since the petitions were sent out, instructors have been far more proactive about correcting their slides in advance or sending out emails to the school listserv if any upcoming material has quote-unquote outdated terminology, Lauren tells me. At first, compliance is demanded from the outside, and eventually the instructors become trained to police their own language proactively. At one point in the semester, a faculty member sent out a preemptive email warning students about forthcoming lectures containing language that doesn't align with the school's approach to gender inclusivity and gender sex anti-oppression. That language included the term pre-menopausal women. In the future, the professor promised that this would be updated to pre-menopausal people. Lauren also says young doctors are being taught to declare their pronouns upon meeting patients and ask for patients' pronouns in return. This was echoed by a recent graduate of Mount Sinai Medical School in New York. Everything was about pronouns, the student said. The student objected to this, thinking most patients would be confused or offended by a doctor asking them what their pronouns were, but she never said so, at least not publicly. It was impossible to push back without worrying about getting expelled, she told me. This hypersensitivity is undermining medical training, and many of these students are likely not even aware that their education is being informed by ideology. Take abnormal aortic aneurysms, Lauren says. These are four times as likely to occur in males than females, but this very significant difference wasn't emphasized. I had to look it up. I don't have the time to look at the sex predominance for the hundreds of diseases I'm expected to know. I'm not even sure what I'm not being taught unless my classmates are as skeptical as I am. They probably aren't aware either. Other conditions that present differently and at different rates in males and females include hernias, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and asthma, among many others. Males and females also have different normal ranges for kidney function, which impacts drug dosage. They have different symptoms during heart attacks. Males complain of chest pain, while women experience fatigue, dizziness, and indigestion. In other words, biological sex is a hugely important factor in knowing what ails patients and how to properly treat them. As a former dean of a leading medical school says, I don't know the extent to which the stories you relate are now widespread in medical education, but to the extent that they are, and I hear some of this is popping up at my own institution, they are a serious departure from the expectation that medical education and practice should be based on science and be free from imposition of ideology and ideology-based intimidation. He added, how male and female members of our species develop, how they differ genetically, anatomically, physiologically, and with respect to diseases and their treatment are foundational to clinical medicine and research. Efforts to erase or diminish these foundations should be unacceptable to responsible professional leaders. There is no doubt the rules are changing. According to the American Psychological Association, the terms natal sex and birth sex, for example, are now considered disparaging. The preferred term is assigned sex at birth. The National Institutes of Health, the CDC, and Harvard Medical School have all made efforts to divorce sex from medicine and emphasize gender identity. When asking questions can destroy your career. While it's unclear if this trend will remain limited to some medical schools, what is perfectly clear is that activism specifically around issues of sex, gender, and race is impacting scientific research and progress. One of the most notorious examples is that of a physician and former associate professor at Brown University, Lisa Littman. Around 2014, Littman began to notice a sudden uptick in female adolescents in her social network who were coming out as transgender boys. Until recently, the incidence of gender dysphoria was thought to be rare, affecting an estimated 1 in 10,000 people in the U.S., While the exact number of trans-identifying adolescents, or adults for that matter, is unknown, in the last decade or so, the number of youth seeking treatment for gender dysphoria spiked by over 1,000% in the U.S. 
In the UK, it's jumped by 4,000%. The largest youth gender clinic in Los Angeles reportedly saw 1,000 patients in 2019. That same clinic in 2009 saw about 80. Curious about what was happening, Lippmann surveyed about 250 parents whose adolescent children had announced they were transgender after never before exhibiting the symptoms of gender dysphoria. Over 80% of cases involved girls. Many were part of friend groups in which half or more of the friends had come out as trans. Lippmann coined the term rapid onset gender dysphoria to describe this phenomenon. She posited that it might be sort of a social contagion, not unlike cutting or anorexia, both of which were endemic among teenage girls when I was in high school in the 90s. In August 2018, Lippmann published her results in a paper called Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria in Adolescents and Young Adults, a study of parental reports in the journal PLOS1. Lippmann, the journal, and Brown University were pummeled with accusations of transphobia in the press and on social media. In response, the journal announced an investigation into Lippmann's work. Several hours later, Brown University issued a press release denouncing the professor's paper. Lippmann's paper was republished in March 2019 with an amended title and other minor, mostly cosmetic changes. The journal has since confirmed that while the paper was corrected, the original version contained no false information, but Lippmann's career was forever altered. She no longer teaches at Brown, and her contract at the Rhode Island State Health Department wasn't renewed. Lippmann is hardly alone. Trans activists have also targeted Ray Blanchard, Ken Zucker in Toronto, Michael Bailey at Northwestern, Stephen Gliske at the University of Michigan for publishing findings they deemed transphobic. In a recent case, trans activists shut down research that was to be conducted by UCLA psychiatrist Jamie Fusner, who had hoped to explore the physiological underpinnings of gender dysphoria. Nor is this limited to academia. Journalists who question the new ideological orthodoxy, like Abigail Schreier and Jesse Singal, with whom Katie Herzog co-hosts a podcast, have also been smeared for their work. After the American Booksellers Association includes Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, in a pr- promotional mailing to bookstores, activists went ballistic, prompting the ABA's CEO to apologize for having done him horrific harm that traumatized and endangered members of the trans community and caused violence and pain. I had a similar experience in 2017 after writing about detransitioners, people who transitioned to a different gender and then transitioned back for the Seattle Alt-Weekly The Stranger. After the piece came out, people put up flyers and stickers around Seattle calling me transphobic. Some burned stacks of the newspaper and sent me a video of it. I lost many friends and later ended up moving out of the city in part because of the turmoil. But far more concerning than the treatment of journalists chronicling this story is the treatment of patients themselves. Patients are suffering. Julia Mason is a pediatrician in the Portland suburbs who, unlike most doctors I spoke to, allowed me to use her name. Mason explains that she works as a small, private practice, and her boss is a libertarian. In other words, she won't get fired for being honest. Mason has been practicing for over 25 years, but it wasn't until 2015 that she saw her first transgender patient, a 15-year-old trans boy who Mason referred to a gender clinic where the patient was prescribed testosterone. Since that first patient, she said there have been about 10 more requests for referrals to gender clinics. As this number increased, Mason started wondering about the advice her patients are getting at these clinics. A 12-year-old female came to see me, and the dad told me they went to a therapist, and in the first five minutes, the therapist was like, yep, he's trans, she told me. And then they went to a pediatric endocrinologist who recommended puberty blockers on the first visit. Mason generally avoids prescribing puberty blockers, which inhibit the development of secondary sex characteristics like breasts or facial hair. The reason, she said, is that 
there have been no controlled studies on the use of puberty blockers for gender dysphoric youth, the long-term effects are still unknown. In the UK, a recent review of existing studies found that the quality of the evidence that puberty blockers are effective in relieving gender dysphoria and improving mental health is very low. In girls, Mason says, blockers inhibit breast development, but you end up shorter. And the last thing a female wants to look male needs to be is shorter. Other side effects may include a loss of bone density, headache, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, mood swings, and something called brain fog. In boys, blockers inhibited penis growth, which can make it harder for them to achieve orgasm and for surgeons to later construct those penises into neo-vaginas, a procedure known as vaginoplasty. Trans activists often claim that the effects of puberty blockers are fully reversible, but this remains unproven, and studies show that overwhelming majority of teens who start on puberty blockers later take cross-sex hormones, testosterone for females, estrogen for males, to complete their transition. The combination of puberty blockers followed by hormones can cause sterility and other health problems, including sexual dysfunction, and the hormones must be taken for life or until detransition. Little is known about their long-term effects. While the line that blockers are fully reversible is often repeated by activists in the media, last year England's National Health Service backtracked this unsubstantiated claim on its website. Mason is one of several doctors who voiced concerns about the fast-tracking of adolescents seeking to transition and the new normal in medical establishment, which seems to encourage that fast-tracking. In 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended that pediatricians affirm their patients' chosen gender without taking into account mental health, family history, trauma, or fears of puberty. The AAP recommendations say nothing about the many consequences, physical and psychological, of transitioning. So perhaps it's not surprising that surgeons are performing double mastectomies or top surgery on patients as young as 13. One leading clinician, Diane Orensaft, has said that children as young as three have the cognitive ability to come out as transgender. And the University of California, San Francisco Child and Adolescent Gender Center Clinic, where Arensaft is the mental health director, has helped kids of that age transition socially. But not all clinicians have cheered these developments. In a paper responding to the AAP guidelines, James Cantor, a clinical psychologist in Toronto, noted that every follow-up study of gender dysphoric children, without exception, found the same thing. By puberty... The majority of GD children ceased to want to transition. Other studies of gender clinic patients stretching back to the 1970s have found that 60 to 90% of patients eventually grow out of their gender dysphoria. Most come out as gay or lesbian. In an email to me, Cantor said the deafening silence from the AAP when asked about the evidence allegedly supporting their trans policy is hard to interpret as anything other than pleading the fifth, as you in the U.S. put it. Erica Anderson, a clinical psychologist at UCSF Child and Adolescent Gender Center Clinic and a trans woman herself, also voiced skepticism about the AAP's approach to would-be transitioners. Unlike Mason, Anderson says withholding puberty blockers from dysphoric children is cruel, but she's suspicious of the sharp spike in young people and especially young women. While she doesn't like phrases like rapid onset gender dysphoria or social contagion, she says something is definitely going on. What makes us think that gender is the one exception to pure influence, she told me. For 100 years, psychology has acknowledged that adolescence is a time of experimentation and exploration. It's normal. I'm not alarmed by that. What I'm alarmed by is some medical and psychological professionals rushing kids into taking blockers or hormones. 
Because Anderson has been so vocal, including a recent 60 Minutes appearance in which she discussed detransitioners, she regularly gets calls from frantic parents. She told me she'd gotten off the phone with the parents of a 17-year-old who had announced that they were trans and wanted hormones. It's alarming to these parents, Anderson said. Anderson isn't opposed to pediatric transition when patients are properly diagnosed, but she wants to see more individualized care rather than the activist-driven, one-size-fits-all approach. That, however, goes against current AAP guidelines. Will science prevail? Medicine is not impervious to trends. In the 90s, when I was training, everything was about controlling pain, said a pediatrician in the Midwest who declined to be named for fear of repercussions. We were taught that it was really hard to become addicted to narcotics. Look where that got us. Around the same time, she says, there was a rash of kids being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, something that we now know is exceedingly rare in children. Before that, there was the recovered memory craze, the multiple personality disorder, rebirthing therapy, a bizarre treatment for attachment disorders that led to the deaths of several children in the U.S. So how does this happen? Some idea will get picked up by major medical associations that put out reports that their members turn to those instead of the actual literature, this pediatrician said. When you get too far ahead of the research, that's when you get into trouble. That's what's happening now. For her part, Lauren, the medical student in California, is both hopeful for the future and not. On the one hand, I have this idea that the truth will eventually come out and science will ultimately prevail, she said. But the difference between things like rebirthing therapy or multiple personality disorder and the new gender ideology that is that the latter is portrayed as a civil rights movement. It seems virtuous. It seems like the right thing to do, she said. So how can you fight against something that's being marketed as a fight for human rights? And that was Katie Herzog, a lesbian writer and host of the podcast, Blocked and Reported, writing an article in Barry Weiss's Substack. Barry Weiss also has a great podcast called Honestly. Now, what is TERF, this trans exclusionary radical feminist what what is that and why is there such a dispute between radical feminism and transgenderism well there is an article in the new yorker called what is a woman it was published august 4th 2014 that explains a little bit about this the article says on may 24th a few dozen people gathered in a conference room at the Central Library, a century-old Georgian revival building in downtown Portland, Oregon, for an event called Rad Femmes Respond. The conference had been convened by a group that wanted to defend two positions that have made radical feminism anathema to much of the left. First, the organizers hoped to refute charges that the desire to ban prostitution implies hostility towards prostitutes. Then they were going to try to explain why, at a time when transgender rights are ascendant, Radical feminists insist on regarding transgender women as men who should not be allowed to use women's facilities such as public restrooms or participate in events organized exclusively for women. The dispute began more than 40 years ago at the height of the second wave feminist movement. In one early skirmish in 1973, the West Coast Lesbian Conference in Los Angeles furiously split over a scheduled performance by the folk singer Beth Elliott, who is what was then called a transsexual. Robin Morgan, the key keynote speaker, said, I will not call a male she. 32 years of suffering in this androcentric society and surviving have earned me the title woman. One walk down the street by a male transvestite, five minutes of his being hassled, which he may enjoy, and then he dares, he dares to think he understands our pain? No. 
in our mother's names and in our own, we must not call him sister. Such views are shared by few feminists now, but they still have a foothold among some self-described radical feminists who have found themselves in an acrimonious battle with trans people and their allies. Trans women say that they are women because they feel female, that, as some put it, they have women's brains in men's bodies. Radical feminists reject the notion of a female brain. They believe that if women think and act differently from men, it's because society forces them to, requiring them to be sexually attractive, nurturing, and differential. In the words of Lear Keith, a speaker at RadFem's Respond, femininity is ritualized submission. In this view, gender is less an identity than a caste position. Anyone born a man retains male privilege in society, even if he chooses to live as a woman and accept a correspondingly subordinate social position. The fact that he has a choice means that he can never understand what being a woman is really like. By extension, when trans women demand to be accepted as women, they are simply exercising another form of male entitlement. All this enrages trans women and their allies who point to the discrimination that trans people endure. Although radical feminism is far from achieving all its goals, women have won far more formal equality than trans people have. In most states, it's legal to fire somebody for being transgender and a transgender person can't serve in the military. A recent survey by the National Center for Transgender Equity and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force found overwhelming levels of anti-trans violence and persecution. 41% of respondents said that they had attempted suicide. Yet at the same time, trans rights movements is growing in power and cachet. A recent Times cover featuring the actress Laverne Cox was headlined The Transgender Tipping Point. The very word transgender, which first came into wide use in the 1990s, encompasses far more people than the term transsexual did. It includes not just the small number of people who seek gender reassignment surgery, according to frequently cited estimates about 1 in 30,000 men and 1 in 100,000 women, but also those who take hormones or who simply identify with the opposite gender or, in some cases, with both or with neither. According to the National Center survey, most trans women have taken female hormones, but only about a quarter of them have had genital surgery. The elasticity of the term transgender has forced a rethinking of what sex and gender mean, at least in progressive circles. What's determinative isn't people's chromosomes or their genitals or the way that they were brought up, but how they see themselves. Having rejected this supposition, radical feminists now find themselves in a position that few would have imagined when the conflict began, shunned as reactionaries on the wrong side of a sexual rights issue. It is, to them, a baffling political inversion. This, stepping away from the article for a minute, this rad femmes gathering, rad femmes respond organizers gathering at the Portland Central Public Library was protested and a post on what's known as Portland Indie Media announced, and now I'm continuing with the article, we question the library administration about allowing a hate group who promotes discrimination and then their response is they cannot kick them out because of freedom of speech. So we also exercise our right to free speech in public space this Saturday to drive the turfs and rad femmes out of our library and our Portland. TERF stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. The term can be useful for making a distinction with radical feminists who do not share the same position, but those at whom it is directed consider it a slur. 
In radical circles, what makes the group truly controversial is its stance on gender, as members see it a person born with male privilege can no more shed it through surgery than a white person can claim an African-American identity simply by darkening his or her skin. Lear Keith, a writer and an activist, was to be a keynote speaker at the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference at the University of Oregon School of Law in Eugene, but the student government voted to condemn her, and more than a thousand people signed a petition demanding that the address be canceled. Amid threats of violence, six policemen escorted Keith to the lectern, though in the end, the protest proved peaceful. Some audience members walked out and held a rally, leaving her to speak in a half-empty room. The most dramatic change in the perception of transgenderism can be seen in academia, particularly at liberal arts colleges. Students are now routinely asked which gender pronoun they would prefer to be addressed by. Choices might include Z, U, here, they, or even it. A decade ago, no university offered a student health plan that covered gender reassignment surgery. Today, dozens do, including Harvard, Brown, Duke, Yale, Stanford, and the schools in the University of California system. Sandy Stone from the University of Texas at Austin says of the radical feminist position, it's my personal belief from speaking to some of these people at length that it comes from having been subject subject to serious trauma at the hands of some man or multiple men, she adds. You have to respect that. That's their experience of the world. But the pain of radical feminists, she insists, can't trump trans rights. If it were a perfect world, we would find ways to reach out and find ways of mutual healing, she says. But as it is, I'm going to have to say it's your place to stay out of spaces where transgender male-to-female people go. It's not our job to avoid you. So that is the probably largely academic dispute between radical feminists and trans people and trans activists, Um, although it is certainly spilling into Portland It is spilling into schools. It's spilling into everyday real life. It's spilling into camps. You know, I've done an episode on this podcast about how uh, my kid went to a camp that I went to, that my mother went to, and now the focus is really on trans kids and pronouns. Um, In fact, it that's the focus to the to the detriment of frankly, sexual privacy of kids, because even though they have, um, and apparently, uh, you know, we weren't allowed to go on campgrounds because of COVID, but according to the kids that have spoken to me and the parents of kids that have spoken to me, they have restrooms that are non-gender specific, but those restrooms do not include walls or doors that altogether block other people seeing you when you're showering, when you're toileting, when you're dressing. And I, I'm all for having trans kids at camp, but I, I think that that's a real problem, especially for little kids and for kids who are going into puberty. And this is all done without the parents' knowledge. There was no knowledge about this in this camp beforehand. So even though it seems like a largely academic issue, I think that the issue of um, and and we see that it's spilling into the Biden administration. It's spilling into the ACLU. It's um, distorting Ruth Bader Ginsburg quotes. And so this clash between women's rights 
or what academics are calling radical feminists and trans and trans activists is certainly playing out in cities like Portland and, you know, like I said, frankly, in the Biden administration. When you're changing the word mother to the word birthing person, I think that's something these radical feminists would be against. And I don't know what the tenor's like in Portland. I'm assuming that most Portlanders would support that. But my guess is there's also a fair amount of people like me who consider themselves trans allies, um, but are not comfortable with the word mother being erased. And again, there's got to be some middle ground there. There's got to be a way that we can include trans people who consider themselves men, but who are birthing a baby um, to be included in, in literature. And maybe they can come up with their own term. Um, but I also think that there's a clash there because as the Katie Herzog piece from Barry Weiss's Substack explains, at some point we do have to tangle with this issue of a meta, real true medical issue, just the fact that people have certain sex organs and that those will come into play medically speaking. And if we deny that, we will not only hurt patients generally, we will hurt trans people in a medical setting and we will fail to care for them correctly as those explanations and examples in Katie Herzog's piece showed. I also thought it was brilliant when one of those pieces talked about how radical feminists feel like men who transition to women are offense is and and then claiming basically all the burdens of womanhood are offensive to them in the same way that let's say Rachel Dolezal is to black people. Rachel Dolezal, people might remember, was the head of the Spokane, Washington, NAACP. She put herself out as black. She claimed that she identified as black. She was in fact white. She was biologically white, even though she uh, made herself so that she phenotypically appeared black and um, held herself out as black. And she lost that job. She lost her, she had an academic position teaching at a college. She lost that. And her life was basically sort of ruined. And so the question is, is it just as, is that in fact just as offensive? Is it offensive for a man to claim that he is now a woman in the same way that it's offensive for Rachel Dolezal to claim that she's black? And frankly, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know how I personally feel about it, but I think it's a very interesting question. I don't have a, I don't have a clear answer for that at all. I don't have a clear answer for what exactly the distinction is. I mean, I suppose you could say, well, they can, it, trans people can take sex hormones and they can get surgeries, but a lot of them don't. I mean, what we've seen from the article is a lot of them don't. And I think the whole idea behind trans acceptance is that they claim that they identify as whatever they identify and we all accept it. And so what if Rachel Dolezal claims to identify as black? Um, 
do we then just accept it? And why not? Why was that not accepted? Why was she fired? I think that's an interesting question. I do have an update in regard to the camp I sent my daughter to. This is in reference to the Walla Moms episode called Sexual Identity Summer Camp. Uh, I talked to some more parents who sent their kids there, and they were just as blown away as me and the other parents were about what was what we didn't know about the camp. And these are all trans accepting people. Um, but they were just sort of blown away by the idea that their kids were pressured to focus on pronouns, that they were sharing bathrooms without their consent, without the consent of parents, um, with people from the opposite sex, particularly these little kids who are prepubescent or going into puberty. And also what I heard from these parents that I didn't experience because, um, I became, when I saw the question, I became worried. Um, anyway, the, the question that I saw in my camp application for my kid was, do you want your child to have an all same gender cabin and a same gender counselor? And I said, yes. And I was, I was really, wanted to be really clear about that just because in my work doing sex abuse cases, I, I don't want my kid sleeping with anybody who has a penis right now. Um, she has had sleepovers with friends who are boys. This is really different. These are all strangers. And if it's a camp counselor, I certainly don't want an adult man sleeping in the same cabin as my child. Just my sex abuse training says um, the data is that men... Um, by a large margin, perpetrate the majority of sex offenses, including on children. And certainly while there are women who also do that, uh, the majority is men. And yes, while my kid is more likely to be sexually abused by somebody she knows and not by a stranger, the best way to avoid sexual abuse altogether is to avoid gender mixing, particularly with uh, adults um, and sleeping arrangements. And, you know, toileting and bathrooms and, and all of those things, which is why all of that raises a red flag for me as a mother and as somebody who works in the arena of sex abuse. So what these parents told me is these parents received or interpreted the question of whether their child wanted a same gender cabin as a rhetorical question. In other words, they, they just thought, well, of course, the default is going to be the same gender cabin. Well, they were wrong. Their children were placed in mixed gender cabins. So that's the update on that. And, you know, I didn't realize that if you didn't answer that question, the camp would just default to putting your kid in a mixed gender cabin. But that's what happened. And I want to explore again what non-gendered bathrooms and cabins might mean for prepubescent girls in particular, but frankly, prepubescent kids. You know, kids have enough problems. And I'm not saying trans kids don't have it bad. Of course they do. But this is an over, this 
everybody shares the same bathroom. Every prepubescent kid shares a bathroom with everybody else is an overcorrection. And this movement that declares everybody who questions these things as transphobic is so narcissistic. Trans people are a teeny tiny percentage of the population who, yes, deserve compassion. But girls are 50% of the population and are uniquely sexually vulnerable. This is from RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. It's a nationally known rape and sexual abuse crisis center. And according to RAIN.org, women and girls experience sexual violence at high rates. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. And young women are especially at risk. 82% of all juvenile victims are female. 82%. Females ages 16 to 19 are four times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. 90% of adult rape victims are female. So of course, men and boys are affected by sexual violence. Of course, we've heard about the Catholic church. We know all about boys. Um, And of course, transgender kids are also at a high risk for sexual violence, but girls are uniquely vulnerable sexually. And to deny this reality under the cloak of trans rights is absurd. And it's ignoring a reality for half of the population. And so I wonder, do trans kids deserve what this camp believes is a protection of mixed gender cabins, mixed gender bathrooms, and that includes counselors who were adults mixing with kids of different genders with, with bathrooms, toileting cabins. Is that protection sensical? when those chosen protections come at the expense of prepubescent cis boys and girls? Do bisexual, trans, and non-binary adults deserve particular freedoms like verbal expression or their sexual identity apropos of nothing that potentially come at the expense of prepubescent cis boys and girls by removing boundaries between kids and adults, campers and counselors, and potentially sowing confusion for prepubescent kids who don't know what those terms mean, like bisexual. You know, when my kid was told by her counselor, apropos of nothing, that her counselor's bisexual, I mean, maybe 10-year-olds should be focused on playing in dirt and not on what the term bisexual means. And the time to focus on that term probably is not at camp with a stranger, but probably with a parent or another trusted caregiver or mental health professional to help them navigate that and answer questions as they arise, but those questions probably shouldn't be prompted by strangers who happen to be their camp counselors who may or may not be of their same gender, whose parents are paying paying them to care for their children. I don't think there's anything wrong with being bisexual, but an announcement of your sexual preferences apropos of nothing to prepubescent children you're pay, being paid to care for at camp is wrong, and so is talking about it loud enough so they can hear. It doesn't even have to be an announcement to them, and nor should it be. A prepubescent little kid screwing up a pronoun of someone who is ambiguous looking or whose pronouns don't match their phenotypic traits, or worse, whose pronoun isn't a binary him or her, but something else altogether that the kid may or may not, likely not, is not familiar with, 
it's to to be generous to the far left it's a, it's a microaggression okay at worst at worst that's especially true right now this is from npr.org october 20th 2021 pediatricians say the mental health crisis among kids have be, has become a national emergency coalition of nations leading Experts in pediatric health has issued an urgent warning declaring the mental health crisis among children so dire that it has become a national emergency. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for people between the ages of 10 and 24. Teenage girls have emerged particularly at risk. Young people have endured so much throughout this pandemic, and while much of the attention is often placed on its physical health consequences, we cannot overlook the escalating mental health crisis facing our patients. The American Academy of Pediatrics president, Dr. Leah Lee Savio Beer, said in a statement. We are caring for young people with soaring rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, loneliness, and suicidality that will have lasting impacts on them, their families, their communities, and all of our futures, said Dr. Gabriel Carson, president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. So now more than ever, we need to pay attention to children's anxiety and try to lessen it. Um, And this focus on pronouns and get and getting it right and the anxiety that that provokes for kids and being told that if you don't get it right you're going to get sent home is is absurd absolutely absurd and to ignore that reality under the cloak of of trans rights is is wrong a prepubescent little kid screwing up a pronoun of somebody who's ambiguous is a, a, a mistake that should be forgiven. There is a way to protect trans kids and trans counselors and non-binary kids and non-binary counselors without sacrificing the mental health of kids and without violating sexual boundaries. And it probably doesn't involve genderless bathrooms. Or if the bathrooms are genderless, each shower and bathroom stall must be fully enclosed. That will cost more. But if you're really dedicated to protecting trans and binary folk, you should pony up for that because you have to do it in a way that doesn't harm the majority of kids that you're serving, i.e. the non-trans kids or kids who do not identify as non-binary. And it's just the right thing to do. And I'm not saying that a cis kid having anxiety over getting pronouns correct is as as bad as identifying as a girl and being called a boy. But the genderless showers and bathrooms where prepubescent kids can see each other, that's pretty harmful psychologically. Prepubescent kids cannot consent. In fact, kids under 18 can't consent, and they're not capable of consenting to allow kids of the opposite sex, or adults certainly for that matter, of the opposite sex to see their bodies. We agree with this legally, in fact. We say that they are incapable of consent. An adult charged with caring for little kids, having a discussion that is either directed to or overheard by a prepubescent kid being cared for about that adult's sexual preference is wrong, and it's harmful because it violates a boundary that adults are supposed to keep sacred. I have said this before. There are very few ways in which discussion of your sexual preference is warranted as an adult caring for children. And it would be if the child asks you if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend and you're a woman and you say you have a girlfriend. 
You don't need to say you're bisexual or demisexual or pansexual or transsexual or transgender or elaborate and any of that in any way. The discussion ends there and the adult then redirects the child to an appropriate topic of conversation having to do with camp. And that's what a heterosexual adult should do as well. And that is the standard that I would hold a heterosexual adult to. And if I heard that a heterosexual counselor went into any kind of detail at all about their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their sexual preference for, for boys or girls in any way, I'd be just as outraged. And so should everyone. The idea that this is okay, as long as you're not heterosexual, is lunacy. I think we would all agree if we're parents and just frankly as adults, I think we can all agree that we best protect children by creating sexual boundaries and the sexual boundaries are appropriate between children and adults and that minimizing those boundaries or getting rid of them altogether is harmful and is not something that we want to subject children to. Camp and the adults who run it are completely disconnected from the majority of prepubescent girls and boys and their actual lives and discomfort in their own bodies as they grow into them. What, the, what would it be like to be a prepubescent girl and have male peers see you taking a shower? These kids were absolutely unprepared for this. There's no way to prepare for it. I don't think they should be prepared for it. You know, this is a total side note, but the trans rights movement only really seems to protect men transitioning to women. Because I, I thought white men, I mean, I mean, I think white men are the enemy, right? I mean, that's, that's the least true in Portland. If you're a woman transitioning to a white man, if you're white and you're a woman who's transitioning to a man, so therefore you become a white man, are you accorded the same vitriolic verbal assaults about your your male privilege and do people screw up those vitriolic assaults in other words if you're a woman who's transitioned to a man and you're white do you hear things like well please um shut the f up because you're a white heterosexual cis male i mean i wonder if they hear that is like with these pronouns, people are focusing on tiny microaggressions. They're obsessed with them. And they're making apologies, particularly in Portland, for these giant macroaggressions in the world. We've got people in tents, prostitution, drug addiction out of control, homicides skyrocketing, violent riots. And we're supposed to turn a blind eye to that and just focus on things like pronouns. This idea that the white man's the enemy. Is the white man the enemy if you're a white cis woman who transitions to a man? Are you suddenly part of the evil white man group? Have you bought privilege? Is there a discussion around any of that? I haven't heard much of any. Let's keep talking, you guys. It's your girl, Karen. I'm signing off. See you next time. Thank you so much for joining us.